Hey there, Alex Pearson. This is your On Point Podcast. Today, we talked about and talked to the youngest man in Canada who had to be intubated, a young, healthy man who almost died. Where is he today? That conversation. We also talk about the federal government's approach to uh, drug addiction and why it's the wrong approach because the solution never actually includes getting people better. You'll want to hear from the doctor we spoke to. And the conservative leadership, it will be decided this weekend. But do we have candidates with the right ideas? Are they big enough, bold enough? Do they have enough sizzle? We'll talk about it. That's coming up. Let's get started. Well, he is uh, known as one of the youngest, if not the youngest COVID patients to be ventilated for COVID-19 in BC. And now this 26-year-old has a message for anyone who thinks they cannot get this virus. His name is Vince Lee. He's a personal trainer, a mixed martial artist, and while he's got two type uh, type 2 diabetes, he's not needed his insulin for years because he's got a healthy diet and he's in shape. He's careful. And then that all changed in March when he found himself in the ICU with a raging fever, his lungs filling up with liquid. And before he could even tell his family what was going on, the doctors had him on a ventilator. He was put into a medically induced coma which is where he'd fight for his life for weeks. The good news is he survived. But of course, the virus has done a lot of damage, and he's basically had to learn how to live life again. He joins me now. Good to have you, Vince. Hi. I think a lot of people, when they hear about young people getting COVID, they think they get a mild case. But yours sounds like a nightmare. Take us through it, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being a type 2 diabetic uh, does play a role in terms of getting COVID. As, as, as like anything, it is an underlying health condition that I have. But like anything, I assume that because I wasn't on insulin or medication and just controlling it through diet and exercise, I'd be fine. And given my health record plus, you know, living a healthy lifestyle, I wouldn't be infected, especially at such a young age. So you go into the hospital with this raging fever, and obviously you're feeling terrible. And the doctors basically tell you at that point, you know, you're coming with us. I mean, you didn't even have a chance probably to make sense of it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the doctors, however, were, pre, uh, were did a really good job at calming me down. You know, they told me that I was very sick, that uh, they had to put me into a medically induced coma for a few days. It's just unfortunately those few days turned into a couple of weeks. So that was a bit of a shocker when I woke up. A bit of a shocker, not just to you, but to your family. I mean, did you have anything about that time when you were unconscious? Can you explain to people kind of what you were going through? Uh, so essentially, I was intubated and I was in a, in a medically induced coma. During those times, my, in order to give my lungs a, a break, they had, to, they had to put me, they had to put ventilators in me. Mm -hmm. Due to how weak my lungs were, uh, my body was going through a lot of changes as well. Uh, pretty much when I woke up, I had difficulties learning to walk. Mm -hmm. uh, and drinking water especially was, was, was a bit of a chore. Well, what's it like? I mean, we've heard so much about intubation, and it is, of course, only done in the most serious of cases. It's not something that anyone would want to do. But what is that like? Uh, I I can't say uh, luckily, I uh, luckily I was asleep for most of the time. Uh, that waking up though, uh, it, it's pretty uncomfortable. They pretty much shove uh, two tubes down your throat to help your lungs, uh, to give your lungs a break, or to help it artificially breathe essentially. 
Uh, other than that, when I woke up, I had difficulties talking for, for a few weeks, just due to how long my uh, how long it's been in my body. Right, because it does, I guess, uh, quite a bit of damage, um, you know, to allow your lungs to breathe. Uh, but in the meantime, it, you know, it, it does a lot of damage, and so you wake up from this thing. People have described it uh, kind of like the flu on steroids. What was it like for you? Uh, <laughs> it, it definitely felt like a more extreme version of pneumonia, to say the least. Uh like a lot of symptoms are going through through my body and due to how much stress my body had to go through, you know, there were a significant amount of side effects. You know, I, I have to go back on uh, diabetes medication, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, hair loss. I had, you know, uh, inflammation, swelling, uh, weight fluctuations, unfortunately. Uh, my lungs well, went back to square one, uh, relatively weak. I struggled to walk for five minutes, you know, Jeez. a few weeks out of the hospital. So, there, there, there's numerous side effects. To say and, you're a, and you're in good shape. I mean, obviously, if you've got martial arts training, you've got a lot of discipline, but you're obviously quite healthy and in shape. And so, you know, weeks after this, months after this, where's your physical um, ability at now? Are you recovered or are you still, you know, experiencing, you know, side effects? I, I, I would say I'm recovering smoothly at the moment. I wouldn't say I'm back at 100%. Uh, you know, uh, I I set a goal for myself, you know, for this month to try and work out every day, whether it's small or major. But I'm definitely noticing the improvement. But nonetheless, I, I still have, you know, uh, weak lungs in comparison to before. There's this certain pace I can go before mm-hmm. I need to take a long break, essentially. Do you know where you got this? I mean, do you have any idea how you came into contact with this? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, due to being in the fitness industry, uh, the gyms had to close down uh, back in March, early March. Mm-hmm. So I stopped contact with all my clients. Uh, after that, I just did the basic grocery runs. Uh, you know, I ran in the park. So I wasn't. I'm not too sure as to how I got it. And at any point, did you or your family, and maybe you didn't know because you were in a coma, but did you not think you would make it? <laughs> uh, waking up afterwards, I realized that there were a few close calls. Uh, my family was definitely worried, to say the least, mm-hmm. yeah. in regards to, you know, the mortality rate of COVID. Uh, my mom was definitely worried. That's for I sure. I bet she was. I bet she yeah. was. That's what mothers do constantly, yeah. even when you're 26. But I think part of the fascinating side of your story is that you are so young. And I think uh, for the most part, um, you know, those under the age of 60 have kind of been lulled into a false sense of security that, you know, they can't get this, or if they do get it, it won't be serious. And what we're seeing right now, as you well know in BC, is this surge of cases and primarily those between 20 and 40 who are going out and partying and having fun. What's your message to them? Uh, like I, I do understand that you know COVID nineteen has a really high, uh, you know, survivability rate. But I'm more like, but nonetheless, I wouldn't want anyone that I know to get it, just due to how many side effects there are from it. It's a lot of stress in your body, and I, I think there needs to be more of a focus on underlying health conditions for for those out there. That you know, you may be young, but you just have to be careful of 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 just what's around you, essentially. 
in other words, don't be uh, so sure about, um, you know, don't be so, uh, I guess, take it for granted at your, your health. And so are you, are you confident that you will get back to where you were? Yeah, I'm, 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 I, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident. Uh, I'm feeling better every day. So knock on wood that I'm able to get back to, to, to my condition from beforehand. That is good news. We're glad to hear. And now, uh, you're known as one of the youngest uh, to be intubated in this country with a, a virus that is a, a real scourge to the world. So continued success with your recovery, uh, Vince, and we appreciate you joining us. No, oh, thank you. Have a great day. That is Vince Lee with his, uh, you know, beware of what uh, what is out there, because I guess guys like him... People like me just don't think you're going to get him when you do. It's just a, just a horror story. Well, it may prevent deaths, but does it truly help those inflicted with the disease of drug addiction? They're going to spend half a million dollars that it's going to go to giving free drugs to those who need it at two safe injection sites in Toronto. And of course, that is not where it will stop. It will just continue to, uh, I guess, branch out if it's successful. And the argument is that this is about harm reduction you know, keeping killer drugs from killing addicts. But what we never hear about is treatment. We never actually hear about investments into things like rehabilitation, therapy, and actually freeing addicts from this disease. Instead, I guess we seem to think it's more compassionate to sustain addiction and not cure it. And that puzzles me. Dr. Jeremy Devine joining me now. He's a psychiatric resident at McMaster University. And you have a particular uh, longstanding interest in this issue, addiction and drug policy. And you actually wrote about this. And your view may not be the popular view, popular view, but you do see harm reduction as almost condemning addicts to a life of addiction. Fair characterization? I would say overall fair. Yeah. Uh, and I take issue with Mr. Cressy's claim that safe supply will undoubtedly save lives and prevent people from overdosing and, and from dying from addiction. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he's basing that off of, but I've looked at the literature very closely and, and I, I don't really see where, where he's drawing those numbers from. I mean, these are very new interventions and highly suspect to claim that uh, it'll absolutely um, save lives or prevent overdoses. I mean, you've written, and I think it's an interesting piece worth worth the read, and the reason I basically called you because it was a refreshing view is that when it comes to things like harm reduction, the field's slipping into dangerous, almost brave new world territory. So are these decisions in your mind being made on actual research data or emotion? I think it's more ideology. Um, mm. You know, I, I think that our, our goal with people who struggle from addiction, they need compassion, they need dignity, and they need respect. Uh, I don't think that they need more harm reduction interventions, which are increasingly becoming more extreme uh, to the point where people are being provided with heroin, with high dose mm -hmm. hydromorphone, and people are being enrolled on dispensing machines where they, they go to the machine sort of daily and, and get their hydromorphone. None of this really treats the, the, the core issue of addiction, which many people agree is pain and trauma. It, it really just glazes it over. And I feel strongly that, uh, our policy has been dominated far too much by harm reduction and not enough by recovery and, and meaningful treatment programs. Right. And, and and finding those programs is almost impossible. And you'll have to have an awful lot of money. And that's, I mean, one of the biggest problems, I think, about treating addiction is just that it's not available and certainly not available to everyday people who don't necessarily make a lot of money. That's absolutely true. Uh, really, with, with harm reduction, there's been sort of two-tiered system being created. Um, people who have money, who have wealthy parents, who have private insurance, 
These people do not get enrolled in harm reduction programs. They go to rehab. They mm-hmm. unpack what's troubling them. Um, but if you're impoverished, if you're marginalized, if you're on the street, you get shuffled into these heroin clinics and um, you know poor low quality methadone clinics, and recovery doesn't really happen. Uh, and and that's 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 problematic. Uh, we need sort of a more fair and equitable system. Well, they do say that they suggest it and and they can make it available. But I mean, a person in the grips of addiction is not, you know, uh, probably of the mind to make those kinds of decisions, let alone have the ambition to to get through a system that is so hard to navigate, uh, especially like you say, if if, if you don't have the means to do it. it. But it puzzles me that we are following Vancouver's model, which, you know, they were the first to put these injection sites in in 2003. Uh, nothing's gotten better. They have not had huge success. There are huge sections of the Lower East Side that you can't even go near because it's just become this, um, you know, failed drug project. And and you mentioned heroin. They're the ones who are experimenting on this. So why are we following their model if what we're seeing is continued addiction and not, um, you know, successful uh, treatment? It's an excellent question. I really don't know why. Uh, you know, any, any unbiased observer who goes into Vancouver and looks at the downtown east side, which, as you said, has been the locus of harm reduction interventions and experiments in, in Canada, it's an abject failure uh, on, on every metric. Crime has increased, overdoses continue to increase, and uh, they've just adopted more and more extreme harm reduction measures. So I really have no idea why, you know, our current government is taking its, its sort of policy direction from Vancouver. Uh, I think it has to do a lot with a really vocal activist group there, and, and they really feel that this is the way to go forward. But I feel strongly that they're mistaken. Right. But those activists are powerful. I mean, there may not be many of them, but they do have a very, very loud voice. And clearly it's been heard across this country because now we have injection sites all over Canada. So, um, you know, we, we seem to have chosen this path to go down, but there are real consequences to this program. Not Not only do you have addicts that may survive one day only to die the next, but uh, the community suffer. I mean, if you're if you're a community that gets one of these sites, uh, you know, in the neighborhood, um, you see a real ghettoization. I mean, you've got neighbors who have absolutely no say in it. They've got needles laying around. They've got people defecating in their yards. That some people find addicts passed out. Um, and what they say is, you know, crime goes up. And so there are other victims of this as well. Right. And it's an unfortunate reality, I think. Um, I I just want to say, though, there's nothing really empowering about harm reduction. Uh, People who continue to go to the supervised injection site, who are enrolled in these heroin clinics, they aren't working on root issues. They aren't sort of um, committing to sort of a better life, to working on themselves. Uh, There's just nothing empowering about it. It just continues the cycle of addiction. And I think it is fair to say that that the community runs into problems when when these uh, places are that up. I think that's fair. Okay. So if I'm a, an addict and I'm going to get my free injection, I'm not just going to take the free injection. I'll just take that on top of the, the stuff that I bought off the street. Is that a fair characterization of what happens? I just can't imagine that an addict uh, in the grips of that war is going to stop. Oh, well, I've got my free one. I'm just going to use that. I mean, they'll, they'll take whatever they can get, right? You're absolutely correct. Uh, it's the nature of addiction that you build tolerance and you want more and more because you're seeking that, that that escape. Uh, and, and preliminary data uh, out, of, out of BC, where they've set up that vending machine, uh, they had a trial. And, and although they're giving massively high doses of hydromorphone, people are continuing to use fentanyl on the street. I think 90% of people enrolled in that program still have fentanyl sort of in their system. 
from mm-hmm. from studies they've done. So that's that's expected, right? You 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 never really get enough in addiction. So yeah, uh, I agree. So why don't we hear more of these kinds of contrarian views? I mean, why have we allowed this other narrative to get such a foothold? Because to speak out against it, I mean, you, you, you know there's a backlash to it. I mean, why do we not have more in the medical community who think like this? Or do we and they're just not heard? I, I think that's a hard question to answer. Uh, I, I just want to affirm, though, that I'm, I'm for the patient who's struggling with yep. addiction. I want treatment for them. I want it to be accessible and meaningful. Um, but... but uh, I just feel that heroin, vent, you know, hydromorphone vending machines, heroin clinics, this is not the, the way to go. To, to answer your question, though, about why there aren't more sort of dissenting voices, I, I, I'm not totally sure about that. I think that part of it is fear. If you sort of write on this topic, you get kind of lambasted on Twitter or, or mm-hmm. you know, scolded. Uh, I think that does kind of play a role, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, the bottom line is it's um, it's a problem. It seems like the solutions that we're providing are are in search and bringing us a whole lot more problems. And um, and the real solution is going to cost us a lot of money, but it's just not being offered. And I don't see any time soon that it will be. Right. Um, and you know, I don't I don't think we should lose hope. Uh, I I think that there's a lot of room in in Ontario's addiction treatment system for creative reform. There are things that we sure. can do, but I feel strongly we have to move away from this harm reduction monomania. We need to sort of approach the, the issue differently because I think it's clear that it's just not working, at least in Vancouver. No, and clearly not in Toronto and not in Ontario when you've seen the numbers that we've seen of deaths. And uh, nonetheless, here we go. It just continues on. Uh, Dr. Devan, I really appreciate you joining us and uh, giving us your perspective. Thanks a lot for inviting me on the show. All the best. Thank you. That is uh, Dr. Jeremy Devine out of Hamilton. And uh, you don't hear that opinion often, but I do think, you know, it's key. Get the people in for help. You can't just talk to them and say, okay, there's help available. You got to take them, make a place available, a bed available, treatment available right then and there. And we just don't offer that. So I don't think we're truly committed to doing this. Well, tomorrow is the deadline to get your vote in the mail to choose the next conservative leader. And all I will say is, well, I'll say more, but uh, it's been a pretty underwhelming race you know a lot of people felt it lacked the fire the sizzle a lot of the big ideas to needed you know to beat justin trudeau and of course it turned out that there were not a lot of big superstars in it just four contenders with really only two names known you got aaron O'Toole and peter mckay who feel most are the front runners and most believe mckay will take the win but it is outsider lesson lewis who's a total unknown, you know, who's proved to be, I think, one of the most interesting stories. You know, she's had no big money backers, barely any media support. And we've got this extremely accomplished woman, also a person of color, who's done the impossible. You know, she raised over a million dollars on her own. She's grown huge support and she's excited an awful lot of people. So even if she doesn't win Sunday, I think she still very much wins. John Capabianco is a senior VP and senior partner at National Practice Lead, also a, a national of public affairs of Fleischman, Hillard, and High Road. Good to have you, John. Good to be here. All right. So um, let, before we get to, to the kind of front runners, uh, some people have said Leslin could actually win this thing. I'm not sure she can, but never say never. Well, that's it, Alex. You know, as, as we know, and leadership, so you just never know, and especially given our system, 
which is a preferential balloted system, which means that, you know, everybody, all the all the signed up uh, voters uh, get to pick, you know, their preference of voters from one to four. Uh, you never know. But but I, I don't I think it's a long shot for sure for Leslin. But as you mentioned, it's just an impressive campaign for her. Uh, and what she's been able to do and, and really has captured the imagination of a lot of conservatives. And I would even imagine those who, who might not be conservatives but have been watching the, the leadership race from afar uh, have certainly take note, uh, taken note of, of, of Leslie Lewis. And she's going to be a winner, to your point, no matter what happens uh, uh, when, when the ballots are counted. I think Leslie Lewis is going to be uh, here for, for a long time and may very well seek a seat uh, in the next election. Yeah, I mean, I tried to get her on the show this week. Um, I've had her on before, but but they don't have a big campaign team. They're not organized. They're not professionals at this like the other two front runners. And I think that is one obstacle against her. Um, but she also doesn't speak French and really struggled with that in the, in the debates. But outside of that, um, you know, I think she's very appealing. If you actually listen to her and her ideas and you can put your issues of social conservatism to the wayside, I think she actually speaks to a, a big part of this base. And I think um, if she could polish up and get a bit more experience behind her, she, she would be a, a, a really interesting candidate. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And, and you know, and, and where I think Leslin has been has been doing extremely well uh, not so much the, the French debate, as you mentioned. Certainly she did okay in the English debate. But where I think she excels has been at sort of the local level kind of campaigning where, you know, the, the uh, local writings have gone together and have had town halls. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I've listened to her a, a few times at some of these town halls that have happened. Um, obviously, it's virtual. Uh, and and she comes across strong. She comes across confident. Uh, and I think that's where she really has excelled more so than than you know what you, what people have seen sort of in the in the two major debates. Although the English debate, I thought she did very well too. But but it's the local virtual town hall meetings uh, and the one on ones where where I'm hearing she's just you know really doing well. Yeah, I mean, and for a social conservative, it's not like she rams her beliefs down your throat. You know, if you look beyond that, she's actually got some interesting ideas on family values that I think appeals actually to a lot of people in this country. Um, but again, it's that social conservative stigma that most people hear and then automatically just completely shut her out. And, and the media, uh, by and large, have completely ignored her instead, giving all the attention to Kamala Harris. And I think, well, you know, we have a, a person of color running in a federal race here and no one gives her airtime. But you know, the real two front runners are Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay. Any idea how close it is? Well, uh, if, if, you know, if I'm hearing from either campaigns, <laughs> the, you know, Peter, Peter McKay's campaign thinks that they're doing very well and could very well win this on the first ballot. Uh, Aaron O'Toole's campaign, uh, you know, tells me that it's, it's a lot closer. Uh, in fact, they predict, you know, in some, in some cases, they predict Leslie Lewis finishing second behind Aaron O'Toole. Uh, mm-hmm. as this thing evolves. But, uh, you know, I still believe, uh, quite frankly, that it's Peter's to lose. I think Peter had the momentum, even, you know, I call this sort of the two-staged leadership of, uh, convention or leadership race. The, you know, the, what, the, the disaster race. in the aftermath? Because it didn't uh, start well. <laughs> It didn't start well, but but also I think too just before the uh, before the, the party or LEOC, the, the leadership organizing committee decided to suspend the leadership race uh, for a period of time and then sort of re- restarted it again later on. The second half of that, I think Peter came along quite strongly. Uh, Aaron O'Toole's campaign was was you know chugging along quite strongly as well, and of course there was the accusations that made the front the front pages of all the newspapers with respect to Aaron O'Toole. 
uh, you know, complaining and, and accusing Peter McKay's campaign of stealing some data. Uh, and that sort of has kind of, you know, gone by the wayside by way of any news or attention. But I, I still think, though, that, that it's Peter's to lose. But Aaron's campaign, I think, has been very, very effective from a communications perspective. They've reached out. I keep getting their emails by, by the dozen almost daily. Uh, and and I think that you know it is it could very well be a close race. And also, what happens here with respect to the preferential balloting, as I mentioned earlier, is that a lot of the Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan votes, uh, if you if you believe what what you know what, what's here what you're hearing anecdotally and, and whatnot, a lot of their second choices, uh, either from from Leslie Lewis uh, and Derek Sloan's campaign, will likely go to Aaron O'Toole. And depending how Peter does on the first ballot, if he doesn't win on the first ballot, this could very well be another situation that happened uh, last time with Maxine Bernier and uh, yeah. uh, and um, Andrew Shear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is uh, things are very, um, you know, tenuous at best in Ottawa these days, and whoever uh, takes it is going to be hitting the ground running. Obviously, Aaron O'Toole already has a seat, um, but it, but it's going to come down to someone has to have ideas and convictions and be able to do what Andrew Shear could not, which is punch through and get beyond the same question, which we heard every single day. My concern is we haven't heard those big ideas. And I don't know if it's because the pandemic has taken all the air out of the room, whatever, but they have to be able to perform. And, uh, you know, Peter McKay has, but Aaron O'Toole has more appeal, I think, across Canada, certainly in the West, than McKay does, because the West doesn't really like him. They see him as just another kind of progressive red uh, Tory. Yeah, and, and that is that is that is shown uh, to be the case as far as some of the some of the support that we've seen, and also some of the town halls uh, that have the virtual town halls that have happened in the West have been much more favorable towards Aaron O'Toole than. Uh, than Peter McKay, although, you know, you can't underestimate the fact that Peter McKay has been in, in politics a lot longer, uh, does have much, much greater name recognition, uh, not mm-hmm. only within the mm-hmm. party, but of course, you know, just across Canada. And I think a lot of conservative voters are going to come down to, to, to voting from a ballot box question, as we always reference, and that is, who can best beat Justin Trudeau? And I think that's where Peter McKay has the edge. Yeah, I would agree with that. Bottom line, though, we don't know when we're going to to an election. It could be on September 23rd, for all we know, when the throne speech is tabled. But it will be, no matter what, within probably the next six to maybe eight months when we go to the polls. they got an awful lot of work to do. Um, to show Canadians that, yeah, they, they can broaden the base, get the votes. And, and, and more importantly, John, as unfair as it is to the rest of Canada, they've got to be able to get votes in the GTA. And Aaron yeah. O'Toole, I think, can do that because he's been very popular and done very well in Durham. And he's been holding that, uh, you know, riding for a long, long time. Yeah, and in fact, his campaign actually uh, mentions that quite a bit in, in their uh, in their uh, campaign, uh, you know, uh, literature and 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 when they actually do a lot of the one to one votes, uh, vote an- announcements and so forth, they actually say that Alex, they say that look, I've been a successful politician, I've been elected and reelected a number of times in the GTA, uh, and who better to be able to to appeal to the GTA voters than someone who's actually from the area, been been elected and reelected in the area, and that's a very strong. 
a message that that Aaron O'Toole's campaign has been getting out there, not least of which, of course, the fact that he's got a seat. That's the other message that I've been listening to over the last little while, which is, you know, other than Derek Sloan, who's got a seat, but of the two, between him and Peter McKay, he's got a seat, and he can go and literally put put Trudeau's feet to the fire literally the next day in the House. Well, if they ever sit again, which would be really nice in this country to have a parliament that sits. Well, it'll be interesting. Uh, just quickly before I let you go, who, who's your uh, bet? Well, I, I think Peter McKay is going to take it. I really do. I, I think it's going to be tighter than most people think, but I think Peter will likely take it. We will see. We will see where the money goes. John, appreciate your insight into this. Have a great day. Nope. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. That is John Cababianca weighing in on this. And again, we will find out Sunday, probably by Sunday afternoon. That's your podcast for this Thursday. Don't forget, you can catch us on point live every weeknight right here on Global News Radio, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. Have a great one.